welcome to Hypot Enthuse, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences here at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host Malcolm, and I'm here with my co-host Maimana. Hello! And today we are speaking with Dr. Leah Lee. Leah got her MSci in Physics from Imperial in 2010, her PhD in Physics from UCL in 2016. She was a research scientist at BAE Systems, the Quantum Technology Enterprise Centre Executive Fellow at the University of Bristol, and is currently the CEO of Zero Point Motion. Leah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... There's quite a few people we've spoken to on the podcast recently. We've talked about their research. We've talked about their work in academia. You are in that wonderful midpoint where you're still in UCL. You're still very much part of the structure here, but you're also working as an entrepreneur for for a completely separate company. How do you find that kind of division of... Is division of labour the right way of phrasing it? That kind of division of ideas? Yeah, so um, I think this all kind of stems back to me being a teenager and um, I was around when the internet kind of first happened and there was this sudden like excitement of like, oh, I can find out anything I want to. I don't have to go to a library. I don't have to find an expert. I can talk to people and find out something new that I would never know. And from that, I kind of became a bit of a kind of jack of all trades. So I used to do music when I was younger and I really loved instruments. I would just kind of learn more and more instruments. So I learned violin and then piano and then singing. And I I think I'm a collector of information and and stuff. (laughs) I wouldn't quite say skills because sometimes I don't (laughs) think I have enough time to put into something to be truly skilled in it, but I certainly am very curious. And so when I was a teenager, I used to get up to all sorts of stuff. I, I once... Uh, I organized a two-day rock festival when I was 14, 15. And oh my that God, was so cool. <laughs> that was purely because no one else would be in a band with me. So I was like, well, fine, I'll just control who gets to be <laughs> okay, on stage a bit, then. A bit less cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I would do all these weird things. I did gig promotion for a long time in Bristol. Um, and I I also felt like I had quite a lot of kind of um personalities if that makes sense I mean some of that comes from the fact that I'm a first generation Chinese woman I when I went to school I was pretty much one of the only kind of Chinese girls around Um, Mm -hmm. and I think I just kind of decided that I wasn't going to be held to a particular stereotype I was just going to try everything and anything I wanted And actually, when I was kind of um, at uni doing physics, I had this real like um, anxiety about the fact that had I spent all my teenage years being jack of all trades, master of none, I really had a significant amount of imposter syndrome. Like, I can't even tell you how much it really bothered me. I actually failed three exams my first year because it was so debilitating. And I was kind of trying to like reconcile who, who am I if I just do physics and nothing else? And um, what I realized was that that's not me at all. I, I like to have my mind kind of placed into different subjects and different things. Um, and so to be honest, it was just time, like just kind of going through that degree, uh, working in industry really helped build up my confidence and kind of really started to show me that the things that you get judged for at school is like nothing like related to the actual work you would do in a company and all the soft skills and all the random stuff that I had done as a teenager organizing stuff uh, finances that kind of thing they suddenly became really useful um, and so I just rolled with it I just decided actually yeah I'm just gonna amplify this kind of jack of all trades thing it's all anchored to um, a certain scientific journey that my research is going down it's not just kind of sporadically everything um, Um, But it does cross into lots of different disciplines. And I've transitioned from, you know, being a physicist, I guess, who's funded by a physics research council um, to an engineer. You know, I'm funded by the Royal Academy of Engineering right now. Um, And I couldn't have done that without that initial... I don't know whether it's brave or whether it was just kind of, you know, me thinking it was fun to just read about lots of different things. Um, But I think that's kind of what's really helped in that Mm. I don't see my time as a singular thing. I see my time as um, where am I going to get energy from and learning something or or making something. Mm. 
I really, really like the way you've explained that. I'm sure a lot of people will be able to kind of relate to that journey as well, especially in school of just being interested in a lot of things and kind of it's a shame that we get kind of really pigeonholed down certain paths. So it's really reassuring, I think, to hear that you have managed to kind of integrate a lot of those interests into what you do now. And I wonder if you could speak a bit more about that, about kind of how... Because your, your um, bio sounds like so much like very physics physicsy um but at the same time it, it sounds like you've got lots of different areas which you're kind of able to weave together into something that's feels feels more comfortable for you yeah i think um for me what's really helped is um kind of saying yes to opportunities but making sure that decision is informed so not closing yourself off and also kind of getting getting past some of the confidence issues of kind of being like, oh my God, there's lots of responsibility if I take on this project. Um, but making sure that that decision is informed in terms of how you want to be treated or how you want to treat others or how you want to see the work being disseminated or who you're working with. So not quite kind of, is this going to be the next big thing in nature? Because <laughs> I don't think that necessarily, if you follow that route, I'm, I'm, I personally wouldn't be as satisfied and I wouldn't be as happy because every single decision that I've made, especially in the last, I would say four years, I can see the train of thought. And sometimes the train of thought wasn't entirely clear, but the feeling of direction was there or the feeling of gravitating towards a new collaborator where it felt like there could be something bigger than just a paper. There was something more there. Um, and so, I think for me, a lot of my background is physics. Um, at Imperial, I, I specialized in building diode pump solid state lasers from scratch. And that kind of really excited me because lasers, you kind of feel like it's this box and magic comes out of it. And to be able to make one from scratch and to be like, now it's lasing, the power is mine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that is that the correct verb, to laze? <laughs> to I laze, yeah. Lazy. Yeah, to laze. I didn't realise that. And that lab at Imperial was absolutely fantastic. Um, there was really great PhD students there who I still talk to now. This is like over 10 years ago and I still have those relationships. And that introduction into laser physics really helped in terms of knowing that there was nice people working in that field, knowing that even an, you know, an undergraduate could get to a point where with an empty table you can make a laser that was pretty empowering for me wow. um and so from there it was like well, what do I do next and obviously I worked in industry for two years and I did a lot of photonic stuff I started working with optical fibers so kind of related but in a different way um and then when I was working there, I spent six months working in a clean room. And a clean room is where they make chips. So how you, you take like a slab of silicon and you use whatever, like uh, chemicals or heat or um, liquids, acids, or whatever you want to use, and you etch structures into them. And that's how they make computer chips and sensors and um, you know all the little tiny stuff that makes things work these days. Um, and that was really interesting for me because um, as a kid, you know, I used to, obviously I love the internet, I love computers, I love games, I love gaming, but I've never ever thought that I would even be close to the fabrication of the components that make those things work. As in, it was, wasn't even something that I thought a physics degree could bring me to because it's so grounded in engineering, that kind of work. And so that was kind of inspiring in terms of, oh, the, the problem solving skills I learned in my undergraduate degree are actually useful. Um, and, and I can apply them to something that I would never dream of being able to access and being able to do. You know, that was like, once again, that was something like eight years ago or something. Um, but it gave me the confidence to then do my PhD, which was in basically quantum mechanics. Um, mm. And so my progression from classical to quantum starts then. Um, and that was a really good experience in terms of, um, it was like, you know, really intense. Um, you know, I pretty much worked alone for a lot of it. Um, and the experiment was really, was really difficult. I mean, you know, people still trying to get 
that type of work to actually work. Um, so it's not something that can necessarily be achieved within like one PhD student's kind of time. Um, and at the end of that, I knew that quantum physics was awesome. I, and I had kind of gone over my fear of it a little bit, but it's really expensive. It's like so expensive <laughs> to do a quantum experiment or to be... Yeah attached to one right it's kind of you know you know how funding works at universities you, you can't really get a permanent position working on a quantum experiment um you're always going to need to have top-up funding and people and stuff and so I kind of in the back of my mind revisited the experience I had in the clean room like eight years ago and I thought oh maybe I can kind of combine what I'm doing in my PhD but not at this quantum regime, at the classical regime, but just kind of um, mature it on a chip platform. So instead of, you know, making things out of kind of bulk optics, you know, you have like a laser beam on an optical bench and you have fibers that you're kind of shaping into structures and it's all kind of big kind of, you know, you're holding things and bolting things down, designing all those structures, but at the kind of, micron to nanoscale um, and then what's nice is that someone else then makes it so it kind of cuts out a lot of the hassle <laughs> and all the fiber alignment that I used to have to do um, and although um, clean room work is obviously very expensive too I mean um, you have yeah. to the you need to have a room which is clean hence the name but what they mean is that there's like you know one air molecule per cubic feet or something ridiculous I probably quoted it wrong oh but God. it just means that sorry not one air molecule one dust molecule sorry that would be ridiculous sorry um, breathing so, would be interesting yeah breathing would be bad I'm thinking about <laughs> vacuums too much no I mean one one dust particle per whatever cubic feet it just means it's like super kind of clean um, and so what's really nice about chip fabrication which is not quite there for quantum technologies is that because chips are a commercial um, product, um, there's uh, foundries um, all across the world and they will make like hundreds of millions of chips per year and they have standard processes and they offer their services to academics and startups where you don't have to pay to have the whole wafer, which would be like, you know, 50K, 100K, 200K, depending Ooh. how many layers you need um, but instead you're just renting a little portion of it so you can get out maybe 10 devices um, but at a much lower cost and that kind of doesn't exist in the quantum uh, ecosystem you can't just you know share a cold atom uh, experiment although that would be cool right if you could just share <laughs> some time cool. on one <laughs> you, you've got a look on your face that says an idea has just cropped into your head now having said yeah that. but i don't think i want to be the one who sorts it because the <laughs> light bulb has appeared <laughs> i don't know man you should copyright that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds pretty neat um so so that that really helped and so that's how i kind of got into all of this chip stuff and and that's what the company is really based on um and so yeah, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, like five years ago, even 10 years ago, that this is what I'd be doing right now. But looking back, it what was really nice was I didn't regret any of the kind of research that I was involved with, the things that I learned. And, and that all built up to this ease in pivoting myself um, mm. and, and following what feels right for the technology. I, I wanted to ask you then specifically about the work that Zero Point Motion does. Now, I was looking online to try and find uh, what I thought would be an accurate description of, of the kind of work that, uh, that the company does. And I found two different descriptions, uh, one on the company website and one on the Twitter. Um, uh -oh. I'm going to Whoops. just repeat these two descriptions, and I want you to tell me how which you feel is a more accurate representation. So the website says that zero-point motion harnesses the quantum properties of light and combines it with the mass volume production capabilities of micro-electro-mechanical systems. We are developing devices that sense motion with 10,000 times greater precision than smartphone sensors. And then on the Twitter, it describes the company as, quote, making tiny optical sensors so you all can navigate indoors and not get lost. <laughs> God, that is that some on. good science communication. <laughs> like, as soon as I read that description, I thought, okay, yeah, that, I get that. That's all, you know, 
none of these multi-syllabic words that get yes. confusing people. No hyphens, just we make senses so you don't fall over. Yeah. Straight up, straight up. Okay, so yeah, so this is something which I, I'm still figuring out. So I would say that zero point motion is in stealth mode, where <laughs> when we're deliberately not trying to say too much because um, we're still really early. I mean, super, super, super early, you know, not to scare off any investors or anything. But it is a very, it's a different entity. And it's a different technology than the, than what I was working on before um, in terms of, you know, architecture, in terms of aims. I would say that quantum description that is on the website is a bit more forward thinking and it's not necessarily going to be our first product. But there's there's this kind of weird, really weird period when you're writing your business plan. So before you get any, uh, you know, seed investment, and you have to define your market, you have to define where you fit in. And I obviously I started doing some of that work at UCL, but for quantum sensing, for, for quantum sensors. Um, and it was really difficult to actually um, come up with a roadmap that, yeah. this is gonna sound weird, that I felt comfortable about. And and so, and I don't mean that in that I don't have any faith in the technology. I always have faith in the technology. I've spent like all my life chasing technology. So that that's not the issue, but the issue is risk appetite. And that changes for every person. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I mean, from just my background, you know, it's just me and my parents in the UK. I don't have that firm kind of sense of belonging necessarily. I still have this thing about mm-hmm. this feeling of if I do something wrong, I'm gonna get kicked out. And I don't know how to describe yeah. it, but it's just feeling that there's extra scrutiny because I I didn't I wasn't born here, you know, that kind of I kind can of feeling. relate to that definitely. Yeah. So um you know, and a, a lot of what the first kind of year or so of a company as you're kind of getting ready for your seed investment is figuring out where your risk appetite is. And and the key is, and I say this to everyone, don't force yourself into something. Um, you know, there's lots of legal things attached to being a director of a company. I don't know whether it's just me, but when I was going through the documents and all the liabilities and getting like insurance for the company, it scared the living daylights out of me because I've never had to do that ever in my life. I've never had money to be able to set up something where there's risk to be had. <laughs> um, so it was, and and it was something which I didn't take for granted. I didn't just say, oh, I'm sure it'd be fine. I, you know, really wanted to be accountable and that can cause stress. But it, the key is, I think, is to is to pivot the company if you feel like the path that you're presenting, if you can't get on board of it, need to pivot the company and so what we've done is we've started to try and use more easier to understand phrases we, we're, we're moving away from that academic um, description of things and just kind of you know saying so many complicated words that someone has to think it's you know pretty fancy right um, mm. and we're, we're starting to kind of really change the not the branding I guess the feel so it's 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 gonna look a lot less like a normal spin-out company like from a university or something like that it's gonna feel a bit more grassroots and it's gonna feel a bit more in in a weird way a bit more ambitious actually us letting go of the the quantum stuff has made us more ambitious so yeah I really like that I feel like you've explained really well so the kind of idea that you're you're trying to get rid of a lot of the sort of jargon that often excludes people and I wonder whether that comes from do you feel like that's a very personal thing for you that you felt that was important to make sure that the business that you set up was more accessible because I can really hear what you're saying about that frustration sometimes of like what what does this actually do um and just being maybe a bit more transparent and accountable about that yeah no I totally agree with that so I mean just to give some context I think I set up that web page last year and it hasn't been updated once it's a landing page which is just like we exist Mm -hmm. it's not like a fake company (laughs) um and and in that time so much has changed in terms of my thought process I would say that this the thing about terminology which is really difficult is for a long time I myself played 
to the kind of academic preference in writing mm. style, in gendered writing. Um, I'm not going to lie and say that I've tried, you know, for the whole of my 10 years at UCL to make sure that everything I wrote, every application was like, you know, thoroughly, you know, checked and for, you know, gendered words and stuff like that. I, I have checked my my writing before and I think um, I'm at this kind of 60% male gendered words type thing. And I'm not surprised at that because mm. I've learned how to write applications and papers from men. I've not, I've never been supervised by a female scientist ever. So that's, so so that's hard for me because there's there's a part of your psychology where you think maybe this is the only way that I get success. If I try yeah. something else and I don't have someone there to guide me as to how to try writing a different way, that I'm suddenly going to get zero, 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 rejection, rejection, rejection. Um, and I would say it's only in the last two years that I've really started to take notice of how I'm writing things, um, how it comes across and the feeling that it puts into people because a lot of the mm -hmm. time I, well, I even when I'm reading physics journals I feel inadequate so you know and I'm not trying to impress physicists I'm trying to impress normal people and businesses so so it's an extra layer that I certainly have to be careful about and the way that I've kind of learned that is through working with other researchers or other academics who aren't physicists so um, last year, mm. I worked with um, Dr. Rinma Ochu and uh, Dr. Hope Brescher and Dr. Rachel Oliver. So um, they all have science backgrounds. Rachel and Hope are physicists, but Arima is special. Arima, she does uh, curation for film festivals. Um, they're involved with um, kind of climate change things. They're involved with racial equality in, in who gets to say things about climate change, who gets to decide policy, who's involved in funding. And we worked wow. on a paper for Science in Parliament, which is, I don't know, the magazine, I guess, that MPs read. I, I didn't know about it until we, wow. we, we, we wrote for it. <laughs> and we wrote about um, racial inequality in science funding using statistics from UKRI, but also our experiences. Um, and what I found fascinating was um, Arima, she was just so knowledgeable and her expertise in, in words, how words have impact when you're talking about, science is relatively easy in terms of words. When you're talking about social science, when you're talking about inequality, you're talking about fairness, the, the importance of choosing every word. And I'm honestly, that was just a really eye-opening moment for me. And so throughout last year, we just had all these conversations and it's really led me to kind of think about how we how the branding of the company should be and there's there's a lot of things that you've raised there with regards to issues around uh, racial equality and gender equality and things which i definitely want to uh, cover more but while we're on the subject of the actual the the science behind what you do there was one term that i saw cropping up uh, in some of your work which i found fascinating uh, just, you know when you, you see words out of their usual context and you think, yes. well, I know what those words mean, but not specifically <laughs> oh, here. Oh, I think I know which one you're going for, yeah. Let's let's see. There was a lot of talk of your work being based on uh, whispering gallery mode resonances. Yeah. Now, I think I know what a whispering gallery is. I don't know what a whispering gallery mode resonance is. Is it something you think you could try and explain to a very layperson audience? I yeah, no, me? of course, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> so whispering gallery modes, you may have heard of the whispering gallery part because of St. Paul's Cathedral. It yes. has this yeah. nice dome top. And if you whisper, if you stand on one side of the dome and someone stands all the way across on the other side and you whisper, the sound waves, they bounce um, within the curved boundary, it's like total internal reflection, um, and they bounce with not too much loss. So it means mm. that the other person all the way on the other end can still hear your whisper quite clearly. Um, there's actually other domes, by the way, all around the world. So it's not just St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, but it's, it's to do with the parabola curve of the particular wall, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it, just, it just needs to have a curve. Uh, any curved boundary will do it. Um, and obviously, um, 
you know, the you can have discs, rings, domes, whatever. And all that has to happen is that the sound wave has to uh, bounce an integer number of times and come back on itself and kind of not cut itself, basically. Um, and so the same thing happens with light. So you can trap light inside spherical objects like uh, spheres, rings, discs, um, even like kind of um, like bottles, you know, like a, a, a mm. wine bottle is spherical. Um, you, can, you can do that too. Um, and what you just need to do is get the light into the, the spherical mm. kind of object somehow. And so what we do in our work is we take an optical fiber and usually light is just confined in a fiber. You don't get light kind of leaking out the sides or anything. But if you melt the fiber and, and stretch it, pull it, it's called, what's called tapering, you basically, you make the diameter of the fiber smaller and smaller and smaller. And then when it's less than a micron, so like much smaller than the width of your hair, um, the optical field, as it's propagating through the fiber, it starts to leak out of the sides because oh, wow. the, the, the wavelength of the light is much larger than the physical size. And that's, that's called an evanescent field, which always makes me think of the band Evanescence. Yes, represent. And what we do is we just place that fiber, which is almost like an in-out kind of delivery system for light. If you just place it close to the edge of a sphere, um, then what happens is light in, you know, can tunnel across the gap from this evanescent field. It kind of leaks out and then goes into the sphere and then it gets trapped in the sphere and the light wave literally just bounces um, an integer number of times um, into the sphere. And so, um, and that creates a resonance condition. So if the sphere somehow gets bigger, then you're not gonna be on resonance anymore. And if it gets smaller and that kind of thing. Um, but in the same way, if the sphere moves away from the coupling kind of waveguide, that also changes the condition for, you know, what is the color of light that's gonna cause that resonance. Um, so you can play on that sensitivity, that kind of like, you know, if, you know, distance is, is related to whether it's on resonance or off resonance, and you can play on that to make um, displacement sensors or motion sensors or inertial sensors. And, and then we get to what I'm doing. So, so that's kind of the basics of it. That's that was a really fantastic. good description. Yeah, that's kind of blown my mind. <laughs> so many possible avenues we could go with that. So with the resonance condition, why do you need that? Like, what can that lead to? I guess that kind of leads on to, to probably what your work is. So that would be a good place to start. Yeah, so um, with well, any optical resonance is, is very useful because resonances are like filters in a way. They kind of, they give you a condition, mm -hmm. right? You're either exciting it or not exciting it or you're slightly detuned yeah. from it or whatever, but it gives you a, a kind of a reference, right? Of, you know, are you on the resonance, off the resonance, that kind of stuff. And, and so people use optical resonances everywhere for sensing. They, they'll use it for temperature sensing, refractive index sensing, um, you know, you can use it to characterize materials and stuff like that. Um, you know, if a material has a resonance somewhere, you can basically characterize um, its refractive index or its size. You know, a size sorting is, is an application for this kind of stuff. And the really nice thing that kind of happened in the last, I would say, 10 to 20 years is that there's this field of research, which, which is where I come from, which is called cavity optomechanics. And what that looked at was, okay, what if you have an optical resonance and it's coupled to motion? Um, so you can use a Fabry-Perot cavity. So the easiest one to imagine um, is basically two mirrors facing each other. And so if you send laser light into this cavity, it's gonna bounce the laser back and forth. And it'll only do the bouncing if the length of the cavity is an integer number of wavelengths. So if you can fit, mm -hmm. I don't know, six wavelengths in the cavity, then you're gonna have a resonance. If you fit six yeah. and a half, you're not gonna get resonance. That's kind of the condition. Got you. Um, and so with these kind of linear cavities, um, you know, the, the really simple thing to do is to say, well, what if one of the mirrors can now move? So if this mirror is now moving back and forth, it's changing the length of the cavity. So you're either able to fit in more wavelengths or less wavelengths. But in turn, that means that you've got this kind of um, condition 
where it's like off resonance, on resonance, off resonance, on resonance. So the mirror motion will then change the intensity of the light inside the cavity. And then that's your readout of, of displacement. And that's really how the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory, that's how that works. Um, and it detects gravitational waves because the gravitational waves, they come from two black holes merging. It produces these really violent um, forces that literally they actually ripple space time. It makes it makes space Whoa. like compressed and stuff. And so when the waves pass through Earth, it distorts the physical space between the mirrors, which is the equivalent of a mirror moving, and that's how they detect them. So that's really only come out in the last, I would say, 10 to 20 years. And so, you know, loads of my colleagues, loads of people in the world. They're just playing around with these systems where you just have to create an optical resonance and have some motion coupled to it. And there's like so many, it's a whole playground of different devices, not just Wisp and Gary modes, but lots of other types of resonances too. That fact about gravitational waves, it always makes me think that physics to me is the subject. I, I always sum it up with, you know, you think you understand how things work wrong. <laughs> Because physics will come along and tell you, oh, you think that, you know, space is a fixed constant and that's not going to change. Physics will tell you that you are wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly I'll tell you, wrong. until five years ago, I didn't know that space wasn't a fixed constant. So don't worry, you're, you can always learn these things <laughs> later on in life. <laughs> um, speaking, speaking of things from uh, several years ago, I'm going to go back 15 years now, Leah. Okay, <gasps> To the start... <laughs> To the start of your science communication career. No. <laughs> so embarrassing. And, no, and Leah's, so Leah's embarrassing. first talk, oh which she did at Ignite in Bristol, oh, no, with, the, with the fantastic title, Stop Asking for a Lightsaber. Mm. So in the last 15 years, has the lightsaber become more feasible or is no. it still no? I think I just heard a million Star Wars fans crying out and then being silenced. See, um, what's going to happen is you're going to get a comment from someone going, excuse me, I think you're fine with the new plasma-based blah, 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 oh, that you can't. And it's like, oh, sorry. But like, I define a laser as a laser. It has to be photons. If you'd like to debate that subject, Leah Please can be do. found on Twitter no. at OctoLeah. Do it! <laughs> No, I'll I'm happy. I'll happily take up that debate. <laughs> um, gosh, yes, that was so long ago. I had. Did I have normal hair then? Have black hair, or was it half black, half Ooh, blonde? Then sound bad. All, all I can see is a still frame on a YouTube video on your website, and you seem to have uh, slightly longer than shoulder length black hair. Oh, it was before my hair became interesting. Oh, that was because I was still working at BA Systems. That's why I had to be <laughs> professional. Now, um, obviously, this is an audio platform and not visual, but what, how would you describe your hair at the moment? Peach coloured, perhaps? Oh, I like that. In need of a hairdresser, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I've been in lockdown and we haven't, I haven't had access to a hairdresser. So I would say it's Me neither. rose gold, which is the nice version of slightly mm. a bit brassy pink, um, mm. with substantial roots. <laughs> <laughs> there was also something I found out, uh, which I found fascinating, um, but unfortunately you are only the second person on this podcast that this fact applies to. Uh, which is that you were uh, one of two people who were Miss January in the Science Girl calendar that was put out a few years ago. This was we we had an interview with Suze Kundu a couple of weeks oh, ago yeah, awesome. where she mentioned this. this is so how of course, as soon as I noticed that, I thought we have to mention this. This is now two of the Science Girl calendar girls we've had on this podcast. I know you're gonna you tick them all off. Um, Oh gosh, yeah. So science communication. Yeah. So when I was um, just before my PhD, actually, so when, and this actually is not contributed, but it was like a bit of a boost in terms of, oh, yes, I made the right decision. So one thing about working in, in defense um, was that you can't talk about any of the work you're doing. And also, I mean, there's all sorts of other uncomfortable aspects of working in defense. Um, but I'm someone who, you know, and I'm sure it's come across now, I'm very curious mm. and I'm very open. And that does not work well, I don't think, in a defense kind of um, industry. And 
one thing that I wanted to do was to improve my presentation skills. Um, so, you know, back then, this is like over, over 10 years ago, I used to be really shy. I still am shy. I would consider myself quite introverted sometimes. And I hadn't had an opportunity in my undergraduate to really uh, talk about science or talk about science in the way that I wanted to. I used to do um, Imperial College Radio, um, but that was that was that was doing a, a kind of radio show with my friend where we talked music, and that was something mm. I was very comfortable talking about. You know, I was I was super comfortable talking like that, but just never found that level where I felt that I spoke with. I don't know whether it's grace or with power or with kind of conviction. It was just something that I wasn't very um, confident in. So uh, I decided to do that Ignite talk, which is kind of like a, a mini TED talk, I guess. And that really helped define who I was in terms of how I wanted the public to see me, which is very different to necessarily how you want academics to see you um <laughs> and that really helped and I'm glad that it's still on the internet I'm surprised it's still on the internet and it kind of and it obviously you know especially then moving from Bristol to London to start my PhD and not knowing very many people you know two years had gone since my undergrad so nearly everyone I knew wasn't in London anymore and and it was nice to kind of feel like oh I really enjoyed doing that Ignite talk and the science communication community is really friendly. So if things get really hard in the lab and I don't have many friends, you know, in the first kind of year or so of your PhD, then then actually I can hang around these people, see what they're doing, contribute, learn. There was a lot of learning that I did that year, just listening to other people. Um, and, and I really, really appreciated that time because I think it's made me a better person, but also a better kind of scientist as well. I don't do it as much now because it takes a lot of work. I truly think that, you know, science communication might might feel easy on the outside because it's supposed to feel easy because you're the audience. But people that do science communication, they put so much effort in. There's a lot of prep time. There's a lot of practice. There's a lot of... Um, not acting, but there's this, you have to hold a presence on stage and that takes effort and time. You can't just do it one day. I think it, you build it up. And obviously, you know, the direction for my research has kind of gone up more into a commercialization path. So I don't do science communication as much as I used to, but I still use all of those tools when I'm doing talks and stuff like that. One thing that um, I think kind of speaks to some of the interdisciplinary stuff that you were talking about right at the beginning of kind of always being interested in lots of different areas like music. Um, one thing that I found which I really resonated with was that you also kind of really like the interactions between science and art. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. There was something really cool that I saw about using lasers as like textures in art and I, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds oh. so cool. So I want you to talk a bit more about it. Oh, I can't believe you found all these things. <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, so, um, so this was, I think, still in my PhD. And I can't even remember how I met Laszlo. So um, I met yeah. a photographer who also did cinematography. I mean, just like a very creative person who was, I think, working part-time at the there's like this national tv and broadcast university or college it's just out the outside of london i won't remember the yeah. name but he he was a tutor there or something i just met him at i think it was just like a science communication mm. event or just an event and um we got talking and we had some really like common kind of likes in terms of you know cinematography and sci-fi and he his mum used to do physics in Poland so he was talking about how as a child he would hear her talk about stuff and I just happened to say oh yeah I build <laughs> laser spirographs in my bedroom because <laughs> yeah. I still do that by the way it's just it's more of a personal thing I just like doing it um so you, you can build a laser spirograph if you have a laser beam if you shine it onto mm. a rotating mirror because the mirror is rotating, you can make a circle. Oh. So that's how you can make a circle with a laser beam on a wall. So if now you're bouncing the mirror off multiple mirrors and they're all slightly misaligned from each other, that's how you can then make stars. Because you're you're doing that's you're incredible. kind of 
you know, you're kind of uh, doing ellipses that kind of move, and that's how you do spirographs, basically. So I was making I mean, that in my bedroom. That's just cool. <laughs> so cool. What are the hobbies? Okay. Yeah, there's like I think there's um I think there's a like a mini documentary where they f- they f- they came to film in my bedroom. This is when I lived in like a basement flat, and it was gross, and you could just see laser light coming out of the windows <laughs> onto the street. It was, it was great, um, and so he wanted to come and and obviously film it and also to photograph it. So he came over and we we basically did a lot of. Um, I was really interested in lasers in laser light showing texture um, because I because the way that I think about lasers is I always think about them as photons like these individual like pseudo kind of virtual particles um, when actually the way that other people might think of lasers is like a, a, a beam of light or a ray of light and and how cool would it be to just completely like blow that up and just make lasers seem like they're organic or that they look like flesh or they look like smoke or something like that. So we just played around and we did a bunch of photographs where um, we were shining light into different um, forms of like, uh, not clouds, but like smoke, like smoke Mm -hmm. rings, that kind of stuff. But then we also did some work where we shined lasers into liquid and we put different uh, fluorescent dyes and stuff in that liquid um, so that you would get this extra dimension of intensity in in the light. Um, And then we made these like cool, they look like, uh, I forgot, oh, Clint Mm -hmm. paintings. You know those paintings where it's like something's like almost, not melty, but like a little bit like that. It's kind of like that. Or I guess a bit of like Dali stuff where it's Mm. like, it's like the laser is melting in droplets or something. And that was super fun. And, um, you know, I wish I had more time to do stuff like that. But, uh, you know, once again, it's like um, there are people out there. I think laser light shows have come <laughs> a long way since, you know, that was like eight years ago, probably. Mm. Um, and there's so, there's far more amazing stuff going on now where people are using lasers to create really beautiful art you know with music and stuff yeah that's so cool looking through your your cv and your career to find things yeah, to talk about you know you were given a making space award by the stem squad you were a fame lab uk 2012 finalist <laughs> you were head of the women in physics group at ucl for three years you're now a member of the race mm. equality steering group you've worked a lot with tiger in stem like how have you found the extra 12 hours a day that you must need to get all of this stuff done <laughs> While the rest of us are stuck with the standard 24. How have you managed to get 36 out These of the are the real That's questions. So what's really funny is I say that to people as well. Like, it's, <laughs> like, there's a hierarchy, by the way. Because if you've ever met Dr. Jess Wade, you don't oh, know gosh, what yes. her schedule oh, is wow, until yeah. you've seen Jess's schedule. I think, I'm pretty sure she's, she's flown for one day to do a talk and then come back. I can't remember exactly, but she is exceptionally busy. So, okay, maybe surround yourself with people that you're like, I'm inadequate. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's what I'm doing right now, to be quite honest with you. That's not good advice. Um, Okay, so, I mean, not to talk myself down, but um, so I don't really have like a huge amount of hobbies like my time is quite kind of boring I I don't I don't eat well or exercise that's probably another thing (laughs) which um (laughs) I'm just gonna be honest because you know I don't want people to think I'm also going for like a five kilometer run every morning that is not the thing I am not a morning person um I I'm not very good at kind of being responsible in terms of looking after myself um Mm -hmm. that probably gives me an extra amount of time I think in that I'm just not thinking about normal stuff like when we're going to clean the dishes and stuff um I think the other part of it is um I don't know how to explain it but it's this all the stuff that I all the stuff you listed what's really funny is that I at the time that I decided to do those things or that I want or I decided to do something extra Um, it never felt like I was adding another string to my bow. It actually felt more, at times, actually felt like I was taking time away from my research, if I'm going to be really honest. And some of that was other people commenting on how much I was doing other things, right? And that's, by the way, that's not a dig at any specific person. It's just a general feeling that anyone Mm. would feel in academia if, if, you know, I listed those things out because none of those things are really positions of power, if I'm going to be honest. Mm. They're positions of sure. um, of enabling better practices to happen. Um, and so 
Um, and I think that's why I do them, because there's a higher reason, there's a bigger calling as to why that needs to happen um, versus just filling all of that with like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what else I would do to be fair. Because I think the other part of it is I'm really careful who I work with. So I wouldn't want to get roped into some science-based um, organizations or committees or being an editor in a journal or that kind of stuff because mm -hmm. I, I I cannot guarantee that I'm going to surround myself with the people that are going to lift me up. Whereas all of the things that you mentioned, they're kind of around communities where I would feel uplifted or I would learn something or, you know, that I would be a better manager, business owner, a better mentor, better something rather than just being like, oh, I got to control that or something like that. <laughs> mm, I think that's really admirable just to hear the kind of discipline that you have. And also I can hear that maybe it's been like a journey to get to the point now where you know what sort of things you do want to take on and, and the sorts of things maybe you can um, you can leave to someone else. Yeah, I think there comes like, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like I, I've taken on things which I know are viewed as detrimental to my scientific career, if that makes sense. And yeah. um, the, and I think what the, the only thing I can ever hope is that um, people see beyond kind of the metrics. Because uh, the other thing that I forgot to say is that I don't publish competitively. I know that about myself. Right. Compared to my peers, I have substantially lower publications. And I'm just going to be the first one to say it so that no one else can say it to my face. Uh, I know I don't have enough publications. That's fine. Uh, that was never my mission statement when I did my PhD or my postdocs or anything else. So that's the other side of it is... I, I lose out in time to pub publish, but that's not what's important, so I don't mind it. Yeah. See, I think that's I think that ties in a little bit to something you were saying earlier about um, looking out for gendered language in the publications you were doing, and and not sure. writing in the way that some people might have thought you should for a scientific career. I think that the traditional idea of what your science career would be: you write in this very traditional gendered way, you publish papers uh, competitively, you don't spend your time with things like uh, tiger in STEM or race equality because they're distracting you from the hmm. serious work. I wonder whether I mean I would hope that society is changing in such a way that we're moving into a world where those things actually end up being beneficial for a career because the focus has changed that way. I suppose only time will tell us whether that actually turns out to be the case. I really hope so. Really, really do. Because um, there's people who do things that I do and much more. You know, people who don't just kind of dip their toe in and kind of balance it with a scientific career, but people who end up dedicating their whole being into it and and those people rightfully deserve equal if not more compensation than a professor that's my honest opinion um and yeah i hope one day that that recognition is there um because there's there's people right now who need that recognition like really right now yeah not not me by the way because i've <laughs> i've i've got enough things that i can fall back on but some people who are experts in this who've really like put a lot of academic kind of effort into stuff um yeah they they really they really need that recognition i know what it feels like to be treated well and to be respected and it hasn't happened my entire career it's it's more yeah. of a rare occurrence than it is an expected one but because yeah. of that that tiny taste of it that's why I'm so adamant about things because if I hadn't have had that, I a I wouldn't be an I wouldn't have been in academia for the last four years, five years probably because I wouldn't have had the confidence to to bid for fellowships and you know so so I think it's kind of me trying to you know just trying to give back a little bit because because so much was given to me in terms of building me up yeah. Yeah, on that note, I think it would be really nice to, I mean, this might be a really difficult question, but do you have any sort of advice for maybe your younger self as to like, what, what you would do differently, or maybe how, how to get to the place that you find you are in now? Yeah, I think the, the one thing that I keep trying to tell myself, even to this day, is to trust your gut instinct. 
Um, we are all born with an uh, innate kind of feeling inside of us as to when things don't feel right or uh, things might go into a, a worse situation. And I would say that 90% of the time, I haven't listened to my gut instinct. And that's not to blame myself because there should never be any blame on that. No one can predict the future and stuff like that. But in terms of, I do have control as to believing myself more the next time it happens. And I feel like, um, I don't know whether it's related to being in lockdown, but because I've had so much time to kind of be in my own thoughts, um, I feel like I've started to really pay attention to that feeling. And I think we all feel it a little bit in terms of how we're all coping with, you know, do we go outside? Do I meet my friend? That kind of thing. We're all having that in intense pressure of thinking to ourselves, does this feel right or wrong? Um, and yeah, I think if more people felt confident or were guided to listen to that, it would really mm. help. So the thing that's helped me is, um, as part of my company, I have someone who is the um, executive chairman. Sorry, I really don't remember all these names because they're meaningless right now <laughs> and it's a team of two people. I mean, we do everything, <laughs> so I don't know. Um, and, and his name is Dr. Gordon Aspin. And, and Gordon's been fantastic. He's been working with me for a whole year. Uh, we've never met physically. <laughs> it's really oh funny. My God, so but he's surreal. just supported me throughout the whole year. And he's yeah. an actual business person. Like he's had companies, he's floated them onto the stock market. He's done the whole shebang. Um, and what's been really good is being able to talk to him openly and saying, well, my gut instinct says this. And just having that confirmation or having that guidance has really helped. So um, definitely find your people is the first one and trust your instincts and, and just keep, you, keep having people around you um, with different opinions, different backgrounds um, to, to just you know, keep you uplifted and, and make, making sure that you've got a really good outlook on, on the world, I guess, yeah. So that's been a fascinating uh, chance to talk to you. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed this. Uh, I hope everyone uh, listening has done as well. Um, so thank you again very much to Dr. Leah Lee for her time. And my Mana and I will be back next month with another episode of Hypothesis. Thanks very much for listening.